Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Ontario MPPs are set to return to Queen's Park today. What can we expect? Colin DeMello from Queen's Park and Global News will be with us. And we cover all things in American politics. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, will join us to talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that's going to be happening here in federal politics in this country. And I know that the focus right now seems to be at what happened with the Emergencies Act, uh, a report that came out late last week, and we certainly want to touch on that. Uh, but there's a couple of other things we wanted to get into, too, that I think are going to have a, a, a big impact on the political scene here in the weeks and months and probably years ahead. And to do all of that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, welcome back to the show. Hope you had a good weekend. Hey, Bill. I did have a good weekend, and thanks for Excellent. having me. Excellent. All right. Well, like I say, we'll talk about the, the rural uh, impact in just a couple of seconds. Uh, but a story that's not getting a lot of attention right now that uh, I think deserves a lot more than it's getting because of the impact it's going to have. Uh, when we do go to the polls, I guess it's going to be sometime in the next year and a half or so. We don't know for sure. Uh, Canada may soon get a new electoral map. And uh, this is something that usually has a l- large, large impact on, on the w- not just the way we vote, but where we vote and the outcomes of it, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And so every um, 10 years, like with the census, we look at the electoral map and every province does it separately. So everyone has an independent commission. So it's not politicians going and looking at the map. Each province will point, appoint like a commission of three people and they look to see how the population has shifted, um, you know, whether any boundaries need to be redrawn as a result of that. And so we're trying to capture like roughly the same number of people in each riding and we're also taking into account the geographical spread of the riding and any what are called communities of interest that you want to capture. So if there's a small linguistic community, for example, you don't want to draw an electoral line right through it. You want to make sure that it's kept, you know, you're preserving it because there's an, an obvious integrity to the, the community that we want to protect. Now, just let's explain the difference here to our listeners about th- this process as opposed to, well, for instance, south of the border in the United States. Uh, they yeah. redraw the electoral boundaries from time to time, too. Which, but to your point, it's the politicians that do it. It's the Congress that does this. And this is how you get into accusations, probably a lot of them true, about gerrymandering. In other words, draw the boundaries so it's advantageous to me as a politician. Uh, that's taken out of the hands of the politicians up here, as it should be. Right. And so what the House of Commons has done is made a decision that there should be more seats and that they they will be allocated. So, for instance, I think Alberta is getting three seat, three extra seats. I think Ontario is getting one extra seat. Um, and, that, and there was a, a bit of a kerfuffle around Quebec uh, was technically because of its population going down. It ought to have lost a seat, but the Fed said, no, we're not doing that. So there's some uh, federal involvement in that side of it in terms of the number of seats, but not the drawing of the boundaries. They're allowed to talk about it. So some of the MPs do not like some of the proposed redrawn boundaries, and they can say that, and they can say it to the commissioners. But in terms of actually going to try to write it themselves or having any real effect on it, they can't. 
And I saw that, I guess it was oh, 10 years ago, the last time this actually happened. Uh, some of the MPs did start to beak off a little bit about it uh, because it, it can have a negative impact on them. I mean, they could look at the boundary and say, well, wait a second, I, I, I scored pretty well on those polls in the last election. I have a lot of support there. Now you're taking it away and putting it in somebody else's area. So, uh, but, but there's not a whole lot of, aside from complaining about it that they can do about it, is there? Not really. No. I mean, like they can, they can voice their opinions and they can work with community groups about it. Like, I mean, I know in Nova Scotia, the first round of proposed boundaries did not go over terribly well. There was quite a bit of public reaction to it because, and this is something that I think is going to be a topic of conversation for us for a long time. It's about the growing complexities in trying to capture both urban and rural ridings. And in Nova Scotia, a significant amount of the population, which is still relatively a small population and a small geography, a lot of us are still rural. And so, and I should say still rural, a lot of us are rural. And so you've got a whole bunch of people living in downtown Halifax and the larger HRM area. And then you've got lots of people who are spread out in local rural areas. And so, and they're dispersed around. And so like trying to to draw those boundaries in ways that the population is getting to that kind of median 89,000 people at the same time as you're, as you're capturing those communities of interest, it gets kind of tricky. And so the first time they, they proposed like drawing these almost long boundaries, if you could, if that makes any sense, that it's capturing like a chunk of the population in Halifax and then a chunk of a rural population somewhere. And it's like, okay, hang on, that, that might make sense from a numbers perspective and that you're getting that magic number of people. But that's not a riding. Like that doesn't make any sense if, if the communities actually don't really have things in common. And now the MP is going to have to try to represent things that actually have nothing to do with each other and might conflict in some cases. And so it's tricky. I think the urban-rural stretch makes it very tricky. Now, let's talk about the impact that this could have, aside from you know getting a few sitting MPs upset and possibly some people in, in different community groups, uh, is, is where the votes are. I mean, we've talked in the past, Laurie, about the fact that in the last two federal elections now, uh, the Conservatives have actually scored more votes than the Liberals. Uh, but it didn't translate into seats because of where those votes were. Uh, the indication I'm hearing right now is these redrawn boundaries could actually favor uh, the conservatives in some way, uh, simply because of the way these boundaries are going to be shifting. Uh, I'm not so necessarily sure it's going to have the, you know the the most dramatic impact on the on the vote, but it could. Oh yeah, and I mean, there's a, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Like I mean, we know that the parties have become very sophisticated at knowing who's going to, you know, who's likely to vote for them, where their votes are. And a lot of these elections, even though we think of them as being these massive national exercises, and they are, the parties are very focused on, you know, those key swing ridings that they think they could actually flip. And that's because of knowledge they have about exactly where their potential pockets of support are. And so the redrawn boundaries could really change some of that math in that some of the ridings that may have gone conservative before will look far more blue now. And others that may, you know, others may be in play for them that weren't before. Others might be a total long shot that were possible before. So like, and then it all depends on who actually shows up to vote. So it's a lot, a lot, but it's kind of like the, the parties now are going to have to learn a different map and they're going to have to strategize differently, potentially depending on how that map plays out. And for the conservatives, I mean, they're looking at three extra seats in, in Alberta that are up for grabs, which is great news for the Conservatives. And if you're looking at a population, you know, that we've got a, a parliament now that's divided among multiple parties, none of whom seem terribly likely to hold a majority. And so these 
differences, these kind of little, the shifts in the map, whether they turn out to be significant or not, are very impactful when it comes to how the parties are going to strategize. Anyway, we'll follow that story as it develops. And uh, there's a way to go in the process yet before it's finalized, but uh, yeah. they're hoping to have it done in time for the next federal election. Of course, we don't know when that's going to be, so uh, yeah, yeah. we'll see what happens. Let's uh, switch back, if we could, to uh, how, let's call it the fallout, I guess, of the uh, decision uh, of the Royal Commission about the Emergencies Act, uh, which essentially said the government did meet the threshold. Uh, and uh, I, I know that uh, Justice Rollo in his comments seemed to say, uh, you know, Technically, maybe not, but given the circumstances, that seemed to be the gist of it. Uh, I, I, the, the response to this, though, Laurie, has been remarkable, I think. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of politicians are making this a political football. I'm sure you saw some of the stories over the weekend that suggested that Rollo and, and Prime Minister Trudeau are related, uh, which is not true, by the way. But once oh it's out there God. on social media, uh, you know, it, it goes like a wildfire. So the, the, the pushback on this has been considerable. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that's allegation about him being related is ridiculous. This is the world we're in now. Um, I think, you know, the part, the commissioner did a really thorough job in that this is 2,000 pages. There's lots of analysis here on the circumstances in a very macro sense that led up to this thing in the first place. And so he talks about how um, the trucker the application of the vaccine mandate to truckers who are going across the border was sort of like a, a match that lit this fire, but this fire was building for a while, even before COVID, people feeling the sense that um, they did not have the kind of financial futures they wanted. They didn't have as much trust in government institutions and in political actors. There's, there is a sense of despair. And I think for Polyev, this puts a definition around the constituency he's talking about who are fed up with Justin Trudeau having done nothing for them in the past eight years. Like this is what Pierre Polyev is talking about. And so that's kind of something that he's going to connect to, I think in the report. And that's very useful to him, even though the commissioner found that the government kind of had no choice, but to use the emergencies act, really interesting commentary on how federalism does or doesn't work. And, you know, in the sense that there's an entire chapter on the absence of the Ford government and how they ought to have been more at the table. And maybe they would have prevented some of this. And I mean, we should anticipate that because they really got irritated with Ford for not showing up to testify when he was very forcefully asked to do so. So I don't think there's anything here for the feds to worry about politically, but there's a lot of analysis about, you know, what what's happening here socially, politically, economically, and then from a security perspective, what we could do differently. What I like, uh, by the way, the overview is well worth reading. It, his, his summary, mm -hmm. it, it's a fascinating uh, perspective on these uh, issues that, that we all live through. But, you know, some through a different lens, sometimes you get a different perspective on this. But he also recommended that maybe it's time to, to update this act as well. I know this yes. was supposed to be, you know, it's just something to clean up the War Measures Act. Uh, but he's suggesting that it's outdated in many ways, including the de definition of what is a threat to, the, you know, the nation. Does that's changed in in the last ten years, let alone the last twenty years? And maybe we need to update and have a different perspective on that. That's an interesting perspective, perspective rather. I thought that too, and I thought, you know, for this is an act that has been in place since 1988, but we've never used it, and so we don't think about it as being, you know, like old or new or what. Like we're just this is something that just kind of got picked up off the shelf in this case because as Feds say they needed to do it, but it actually has of you know this is this is decades old, and yes, definitions of security be, have changed because threats to security have changed the nature of those things, and so even how are we able to, you know, be more mindful and be better at monitoring activity on social media 
that would itself present some evidence to suggest that a threat is building and is coming. And so it, I thought his comments around that were very interesting. And for his part, I mean, a situation like this where he's making a determination about whether the federal government met the threshold, we know that this is a political rather than a legal determination, right? And so he's a judge. He's, he's in the situation where whatever he finds is going to be a political football, as you say. There's no legal impact to it. The, you know, the government's not going to go to jail. It's, this is about politically has the threshold been met. And the public is going to make that decision in their own mind with some effect, of course, on the, because of the report. So I think Rolo, you know, it, not wanting to be a political football, managed to take the time to very thoroughly explain some things that we all need to know. I thought he showed a lot of compassion for everybody. I thought he was a, he came across as very empathetic. And, and I guess one of the takeaways and one of the major ones here is, is and it gets into wordsmithing, uh, he said that the government met the, the threshold. He does not exonerate the government in any way, shape, or form. As you say, yeah. he calls out uh, Doug Ford. He calls out a number of people in government and some government agencies to say that you all contributed to the circumstance that, that you know, the government was presented to. And, and, you know, the way they reacted was probably the right way, but th- there's a culpability here that he doesn't want us to forget about. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I thought that was that like on that score, I think, again, he wanted to be careful and say, look, like one of the most controversial things that happened was the freezing of people's bank accounts. And while he said, look, you know, that may have been necessary, there should have been a process around the transparency. When will your your account be unfrozen? What are we doing, you know, for humanitarian reasons, for example, if accounts are frozen and then child support payments can't be made? Like what, you know, where's the thinking around that? And so I thought he, he brought that level of nuance to say, look, if you have to go this route, it is incumbent upon the government to show every, you know, er- everything they can to make sure that whatever happens that comes out of the use of the Emergencies Act is, is fair and, and proportionate and, and that sort of thing. Well, and just, I know we're just about out of time, but I think the final takeaway was uh, from the justice himself said, don't let this sit in somebody's bottom drawer, you know, act on this now, federal government and other governments. Uh, These are the the shortcomings as I see them now do something about it. So we don't find ourselves in this situation again. And, And that's an important message. Oh, I think so too. I mean, it's, I think that's really the pressure on the federal government because again, there's, although he doesn't fully exonerate, there's no real political stress on them here. And so where will they take this report and actually do something with it? He's got 56 recommendations in there, including for a national coordinator, uh, you know, to kind of oversee and coordinate the flow of information in the event that something like this were to occur again. And I think that's probably one of the most important takeaways from the thing is that communications breakdown and problems in terms of sharing information and coordinating efforts were a significant operational problem when it came to the response to this thing. And so We'll see what they do with it, and we'll see if the opposition parties press the government on actually acting on some of these recommendations. Absolutely. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks. You you too, both. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back to work with the Ontario legislature after uh, their winter break. Uh, and boy, there's no shortage of things for them to be talking about. Uh, the health care uh, deal with the feds, uh, as a matter of fact, there has to be legislation from the Ontario government to actually enact some of the things that Ford's been talking about. That's going to be part of it. Uh, the Greenbelt issue has not gone away and won't go away for some time. And a number of other uh, items that are going to be on the docket in the uh, days and weeks ahead in uh, Queen's Park. To talk about those, please to welcome back to the program, Colin DeMello. Colin is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, busy day for you, Colin. Thanks for taking a few minutes for us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, where do we begin? I mean, let's let's do the healthcare thing first of all, because the, the you know the premier said they were going to do this deal. Uh, Doug Ford kind of preempted that, of course, a, a couple of days before that premier's meeting by suggesting this was going to be their plan. And that there's a lot of public-private partnerships here uh, that a, a lot of people, including the opposition parties, are pretty uncomfortable with, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of talk about the idea of privatization or slowly kind of chipping away at the Ontario public health care system and, and kind of handing things over to private. I mean, you know, the first thing that a lot of people have to know is that private delivery of public health care has existed for a very long time in the Ontario health care system. Some of it predated uh, the Canada Health Act, as an example. And, you know, if you take a look at your family doctor, your family doctor is an independent contractor who gets paid by the province. They build the province, but really, you know, all the overhead is paid for by the doctors themselves. So it's a, you know, it really is a private enterprise. What the government wants to do is tackle more of the surgical backlog, the diagnostic backlog, and move more of those out of hospitals and into uh, some of these private clinics that will still be paid for, the premier says, by your OHIP card. And the other thing they also want to do is move knee and hip surgeries, more of those out of hospital and into these um, private facilities. Now, this is the one that could be a little bit controversial. The legislation is going to be coming out today that'll show us exactly, you know, the, the scale and the scope of, of uh, these surgeries that'll be performed in private facilities. But this is where, you know, opponents of these plans say, listen, there are a couple of issues with this. One, you know, when you go to a private facility, you could be upcharged, you could be upsold, and there could be other things like, you know, uh, your insurance might pay or your your health card might pay for a basic room. Well, what if you need a, a separated room? What, who pays who pays for that? That might come out of pocket as an example. Um, I, you know, and there are other things as well, like, you know, the backdooring of private hospitals, the Ontario Hospital Coalition, as an example, was worried that, you know, uh, private hospitals, which are not allowed in Ontario, could really be created uh, as more of these procedures are moved into these private facilities. So there are a lot of concerns here. We'll see kind of what this legislation looks like today at four o'clock. And let's just remind her, of course, this is a majority government. I mean, so the legislation ultimately will pass, but I'm sure, I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of back and forth on this. Uh, speaking of uh, of uh, things green, uh, as I mentioned in my commentary, the, you know, the, the legislature brought to you by the color green. It's like a Sesame Street script. Uh, green leader, of course, uh, Mike Schreiner is uh, going to have eyes on him right now. Any idea as to whether he's made his decision to stay put as Green Party leader or to jump over to the Liberals? So there is a lot of buzz about this, and we're hearing a lot of things about whether or not the uh, the government, uh, sorry, the Green Party leader is going to make a shift. Um, you know, we've been talking to a lot of liberal sources who seem to indicate that, you know, there could be some kind of a willingness to move here and that we should be watching the Ontario legislature very carefully, specifically as it pertains to, you know, a potential floor crossing this week. Uh, here's what's at stake for the Green Party leader. He has to move over to the liberal. Uh, this week or next, if he wants to run for the Ontario Liberal leadership, um, because they have an annual general meeting that's slated to begin on March 3rd. You know, if 
Mike Schreiner intends to run, he'd have to come to that meeting armed with you know, quite a lot of support, maybe some Green Party supporters as well, and really start building the case for why he should be leader. Uh, there are a couple of things that are happening at that meeting that are consequential as well. One, the, the party is going to decide whether it's going to be a delegated convention, meaning, you know, uh, people connected to the Ontario Liberal Party really get to decide who the next leader is, or whether it's a one member, one vote system, which is often seen as a little bit more democratic, where, you know, all party members get to have some kind of a say and some kind of um, input here. So that is one big hurdle. Another hurdle is one liberal MPP is trying to change the Ontario Liberal Party constitution, asking for uh, to limit anyone who was not a party member before January 1st, so preventing uh, non-party members from actually running for the party. And that seems to be directly directed at Mike Schreiner. So there is a lot at play here, but definitely this week is one that we're watching Mike Schreiner to see if he gets up from his seat. All of us will be getting up to see, is he moving? What's he doing? Is he handing a letter to the speaker? Is he going to be sitting over with the liberals? What, what's going to be happening? There's going to be some political high drama at, at Queen's Park this week, for sure. Yeah, talk about monitoring. I mean, every time this guy shifts in his seat, people are going to say, there it goes. There it goes. Uh, that, that's going to be the high drama. Let, let's talk about the Greenbelt situation. I know that uh, the, the premier has been, uh, you know, touting the fact that, look, at, you know, I've been investigated. The integrity commissioner says everything was fine. Uh, I know, as you've been reporting, Colin, a lot of folks are even skeptical about the integrity commissioner's report as to just how in-depth his investigation really was. Uh, but this is not the end of it either. We still have to hear from the uh, the Auditor General and possible other uh, investigations in the in this same matter. Yeah, well, the integrity commissioner has launched an investigation into um, Housing Minister Steve Clark to see, you know, whether he gave developers any kind of heads up. That is number one. Number two is the Auditor General, who's uh, launched a value for money audit related to whether some of the lands, particularly in the eastern part of the GTA, whether some of those lands were sold off and you know we could have netted a higher return for the Ontario taxpayer than what was actually sold off for. Um, and then three, we're waiting for the OPP to see whether they make a decision as to whether or not there is going to be any kind of um, you know police investigation into all of this. Um, there's lots of moving parts. But then, of course, inside the legislature, you know, the opposition parties are going to want to make this scandal stick. They sense that there is already some, you know, public pushback. Uh, they are trying their best to kind of make this really land on the government's feet here. And so you're going to be hearing a lot of the, about this from, uh, you know, the Ontario NDP, because Mart Stiles, it's her first day as the leader of the NDP inside the legislature. You're going to be hearing about it from the Ontario Liberals, Mike Schreiner as well, depending on where he's sitting. Uh, but this is going to be one that the, the, the government is going to have to reckon with in the next few days and weeks. Uh, lots on the plate and lots to uh, to go. We just didn't even know how much of this is actually going to get covered in the first day, but uh, it's going to be a, a wild and, and very, very uh, interesting couple of days. Colin, I know how busy you are today. i got to get back to work, and uh, thank you so much for the time today. We'll talk again later on. Thank you for having me. Take care. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News. And and th these are all big issues. And uh, uh, he just touched on the possible investigation by the OPP. Now, a number of, uh, of MPPs and, and others 
uh, have suggested that the OPP get involved. Uh, they haven't said yes or no at this stage. I don't know if they're waiting for the Auditor General's report uh, to get her perspective on, on exactly what happened here. Uh, but the political spin has already started, as we've heard from uh, the Premier suggesting that the, 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 the media is just picking on his daughter. Uh, you know, private life and, you know, we should, it's none of your business. And uh, I guess from a philosophical standpoint and a technical standpoint, he's right, except this is not about his daughter. It's about his government and who benefited from the, the contributions that were made by these developers. And uh, did they, was this a payback actually for information that they received uh, to purchase the land? There's still an awful lot of questions and the, uh, the possibility of an OPP investigation, and it's only a possibility at this point, uh, is is key here because usually, if that's going to be the case, and, and the police are going to investigate, that means that they're they're kind of moving into the realm of possible criminal activity, uh, and that can really, you know, be a, a headache for the government in situations like that. Now we're not there yet, but until the OPP said nothing to see here, uh, it's that's still that's up there that's hanging. And as Colin just mentioned, uh, you got to figure the opposition parties are going to be jumping all over that today. Uh, as well as a couple of the other key issues, including this uh, forthcoming health care legislation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, as we mentioned, uh, President Biden is in Warsaw. As a matter of fact, about 20 minutes from now, he'll be uh, addressing, uh, well, not just the, uh, the the folks in Warsaw, but certainly uh, Vladimir Putin, who made his so-called State of the Union address earlier uh, with some rather threatening comments. Uh, to talk about that and what else is happening in the U.S. Capitol is a very busy week. Uh, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Reggie Giacchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, thank you on a busy day for uh, making some time for us today. Good morning. Uh, let's let's talk about the president's visit. I, I I know that you know sometimes these things take weeks and months to plan. Uh, this one kind of jumped up at us, and I understand for security reasons, etc. But uh, was it a surprise to, to folks in in Washington when uh, they found out that the president was on his way over to Ukraine? Sure. Uh, I mean, look, the go ahead for this trip was given uh, last Friday, but it had been weeks and weeks in the making, and we didn't find out that this was uh, actually underway until about five o'clock. Uh, in the morning when the very pared down reporter pool uh, was uh, able to put out some notes. Uh, most of their equipment had been taken away from them. We didn't know when he had left until long after he had landed in Poland uh, and was on a train in towards Kiev. This was a big surprise. This was a long pushed for visit uh, by both Democrats and Republicans. And it comes at a very uh, uh, urgent time, given the fact that we are on this now fast walk to the one year anniversary of this war. Well, let's talk about that, because I know some of the critics, and there will always be critics in circumstances like this, uh, will characterize this as just a photo op by Biden. You know, he's he's going to show that he's still the leader and he's in charge. Uh, but I think the more practical approach here, Reggie, is that, that this, there is, uh, I think, an important subtext to this whole thing about not just being there, but this at this particular time. Uh, with uh, the, the concern about a Russian offensive, et cetera, that, uh, that I guess uh, President Biden felt as if he had to make a, a statement here. Sure. And, and I mean, look, it was just about a year ago that President Biden was standing in almost this exact location where we'll see him shortly uh, in Poland, where he made those comments, off-the-cuff comments, that this man cannot stay in power. He is now back one year later trying to push back to say, look, uh, Russia has made um, improper decisions over the last year and look at the losses that they have suffered or at least the gains that they haven't been able to make. To have the president of the United States, number one, 
in an active war zone in Ukraine yesterday was monumental given the fact that the United States does not have a military presence in that country. It is not an active part of this war, and it also did not have control of the airspace. This shows that the U.S. was willing to take a significant security risk, even though they did give some advance warning uh, to Russia. But now to have him in Poland speaking to the Ukrainian people, speaking to the Ukrainian refugees in Poland, to the NATO alliance, to the EU alliance, and to Americans and the world, this is a strong signal that this is a president who has been leading the effort to ensure that the Western wall of support does not crack, that the money is going to continue to flow, and that this will not be something that backs away to allow for President Putin to make whatever decision it is that he wants to do to try and give himself something to call a victory. It, so clearly, I mean, the subtext of, of what he said, of course, in Ukraine, uh, is we're not going anywhere. Uh, you know, don't you know, Mr. Putin, don't count on the fact that we're going to start to waver and and back off. Uh, and certainly, Putin, I think, responded to that with his speech. But wh- how does this play back home, though, Reggie? Because he does have his uh, critics over there, and there are some Republicans, especially, uh, that are suggesting, okay, enough is enough. We we need to back away from Ukraine and let them fight their own battles. Uh, does does this negate though that feeling? Does it does it? shove that those people back into a corner right now where it, it, it seems clear that they're the minority opinion here it's a it's a bit of six of one there's been some recent polling um that we reported on yesterday that shows that back in the early months of this war in may of 2022 60 percent of the american population uh adult population was in favor of the united states doing what it could to assist ukraine and that included putting forth um uh appropriated money to be able to fund uh weapons in ukraine Fast forward a year to where we are right now, that number is no longer 60%, it is down to 48%. And I spoke with a uh, a former Pentagon uh, retired colonel yesterday, and he made a point of saying, look, the, the numbers may not be there, the numbers may be lower than what they were, but if the United States, if the president is able to communicate to the public that this is for the greater good and if there is a show on the battlefield that Ukraine is able to make advances, which they are, which we will hear from the president uh, in his speech later today, um, that this is going to do something to allow for the the American public, the skeptics in the Republican Party, maybe skeptics on the progressive side of the Democratic Party, to say that this is worth it. This money is going to ensure not only the independence and sovereignty of Ukraine, but prevent this kind of invasion or risk to any other nation. I, we know we've talked about the Russians' possible, uh, you know, invasion. Well, it was a year ago with the invasion, but a, a second wave that uh, that may be coming if it hasn't already started. I guess uh, it seems as if uh, the Biden administration is 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 making their own counteroffensive here politically, anyway. Uh, by the president being over there, by the announcement a couple of weeks ago that you guys reported on, Reggie, that about uh, more armed shipments that are going to be sent there, more weaponry is on its way to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, even Secretary of State Blinken's getting in on the act here, too, uh, urging uh, the uh, the speedy uh, approval of both Sweden and Finland to join NATO uh, during his visit to Turkey. It seems as if the, the, the big push is on right now uh, to solidify uh, the NATO support for Ukraine. Absolutely. And it comes amid uh, ongoing threats. As you had you know, mentioned right off the top, there was a speech given by Vladimir Putin today, which is being met with with harsh criticism from the West in that there could be a walk away from a nuclear treaty between Russia and the United States. Obviously, that becomes problematic, not only for the eastern flank uh, of Europe, but for Europe as a continent and for the greater globe. Uh, there's also growing concern here that we could see Beijing become an arms supplier of lethal weapons to Russia to allow them to bolster uh, the activities that they are carrying out 
uh, in Ukraine. So, of course, you are going to see this this push from the United States government. And it is worth pointing out that the U.S. has been the largest donor when it comes to cash uh, and and uh, and funds for weapons uh, across any other country in the world. It's in and around one hundred thirteen billion dollars that's been allocated. Uh, Sure, you're going to see this big push to ensure that this wall of support does not fall. uh, And we'll hear from the president today make a point of saying that Vladimir Putin had intended for Ukraine to be conquered, for Kiev to fall, for Vladimir Zelensky to be removed, and for NATO to have kind of fizzled out. And all we've seen is NATO continue to grow stronger. There's been some pushback, obviously, a bit within uh, Hungary. But ultimately, the bloc is, uh, is strong potentially set to grow. And this is now seeing as further provocation for Russia, which spells that warning. What are they going to do next? Well, and let's talk a little bit about that Chinese involvement. There's a story that you guys talked about over the weekend at Global News, and it's a it's a frustrating circumstance. And if we've learned anything, I guess, it's that nothing happens in isolation uh, when you're looking at, at, at the global picture now. Uh, China, of course, is trying to refute the stories that they actually may be supplying arms or are about to supply arms to the Russians. Uh, we have North Korea firing off some more missile tests today, and it's almost like, hey, don't forget about us over here. I don't know if it's meant to be a distraction to the U.S., uh, because, since they seem to be ramping up their support for Ukraine, that that uh, the Chinese and the North Koreans kind of want to maybe uh, you know distract them for a little while so, to say, hey, don't forget about us. So, you know, We're going to be a, a pain in your butt, too. Uh, it's, it's, it's all, I don't know if it's all a part of a grand strategy, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch of any conspiracy theory to suggest that uh, these guys are all talking, and, and NATO and the Americans especially seem to be in their crosshairs. Yeah, look, there is a pushback here uh, across uh, Asia Pacific to tamp down on this um, on this buildup of support that we have seen standing behind what has been led by Washington. On the China front, obviously, there are already fraught relations between Washington and Beijing, especially in recent weeks over the spy balloon matter. Now, with the real risk here that we could see China become involved in this war, which could spell all kinds of risks in that you'd have China and Russia now facing off against NATO alongside, including uh, Washington. This this could elevate the risk uh, to what could happen here. But China involving itself in this war could also do more to harm the relationship that Beijing has with Washington, but also that Beijing has with a number of European nations as well. And, you know, China has this quote unquote, no limits relationship with Moscow. So we need to see what China intends to do. They have told the U.S. to back off. They've said that they're simply, you know, involved in trying to broker a peace deal. The Chinese foreign ministers in Russia uh, uh, today, I believe, uh, we'll have to see what comes out of that. On the North Korea front, this is an ongoing tit for tat that we have seen between Pyongyang and Washington for the last several years. Obviously, it was tamped down a little bit during the Trump administration. The recent number of ballistic missiles that have been fired uh, over the last couple of years, the last couple of months and the last couple of days is of concern for Washington, especially with Pyongyang saying that they now have the ability to reach um its enemies, aka North America, that hasn't been proven yet, but it is of concern not only for uh, the U.S., but for the allies across the region. U.S. is set to take part in military drills with Japan and South Korea. That's part of what's rattling the nerves here in North Korea. Reggie, I want to circle back to, to Putin's announcement today, especially when it came to the the nuclear uh, treaty. Uh, he says he is suspending operation. They're not, they're not backing away from the deal altogether, but kind of hitting the pause button. Uh, How is that playing in Washington today? I mean, is there a concern here that that's Putin suggesting that the, the use of nuclear weapons might be part of his arsenal, might be part of his long-range strategy for Ukraine? 
Sure, it's a real concern. Uh, the U.S. top diplomat, Antony Blinken, in uh, in Athens today made a point of saying that this is uh, irresponsible and that it is not productive for Moscow to make these uh, these threats. And this START deal uh, essentially is uh, is a nuclear treaty between the United States and and Russia that was signed back by Barack Obama in 2010 to limit the number of warheads that could be deployed by one country. It's a heavy number. It's 1,500. But if if Russia says that they are going to walk away from this, that opens up a possibility. What are they going to do? Vladimir Putin says that this is a result of the United States saying that they're going to start testing nuclear weapons. Obviously, that is not founded in any kind of um, reality or truth. And Russia made a point of saying that it won't be the first one to test a weapon, but it is testing the kind of strength and response as to what you're going to see from NATO. NATO Secretary General said that the world will be a more dangerous place if Russia walks away from this um, nuclear pact that is in place. You know, again, we'll have to wait and see. It would be an incredible step forward uh, and and destructive step if if Russia ultimately decided to not only walk away, but potentially start testing nuclear weapons. Uh, this could further isolate the nation. It could also draw far more countries in because nuclear weapons do far more than just impact the one nation where it lands. This could become significantly more problematic than it already is. Is there a concern now about how Putin's going to respond to the U.S. response? Uh, it doesn't sound as convoluted as, as it might be, but the, the reality here is there a speculation. You guys at Global News have been reporting for quite some time right now about what's going on in Russia, that uh, that some of the, the power brokers there are concerned about the fact that, hey, this is you know coming up on the, on the first anniversary of this war in a couple of days. Uh, it wasn't supposed to go this way. Uh, you know, we weren't supposed to have these kind of casualties. Uh, these guys didn't, you know, didn't capitulate where they were supposed to. And now you've got NATO getting stronger, as you mentioned, uh, with maybe new members now, uh, two new members that may join them right on the border of Russia. Uh, do they look at this and say, well, maybe Putin has to flex his muscle in some way, shape or form to prove to his own people and to, and to the power brokers in Russia that he's still the guy who's calling the shots? Sure, absolutely. And we've heard from American officials say that this could simply be chest thumping uh, on behalf of Vladimir Putin and a bit of propaganda to try and show his people that this has not been for nothing. This this special military operation or war that's now being used more frequently uh, by Vladimir Putin has resulted uh, in something. And whether that is Russia trying to claim that it still has some kind of leverage and standing on the world stage and that it can still be a nuclear power and it can still be uh, important, that is something to play to a domestic audience. But as you had mentioned earlier, the fact that he has not fully pulled out of this deal and is simply suspending it, it allows for a door to remain open that potentially brings in the West to renegotiate. And it allows for Vladimir Putin to say, look, I still have this power to be able to negotiate with the West and we are going to do this. Obviously, again, this is all very new. We need to see what kind of um, path Vladimir Putin is going to follow, especially when it comes to um, these nuclear arms. We also have to wait to see what Joe Biden says during his speech. We know it's going to invoke Vladimir Putin's name repeatedly. Does that do something that's going to result in a response that requires a response that requires a response? That's something to watch for over the next few hours. Are we long past the idea of a, of a negotiated settlement? I know they talked about that, and I don't, don't know if either side was really serious about it. But it, from uh, from Putin's comments and, and the way the president's talking, we'll see what he's going to say in Warsaw in a couple of minutes, I guess. Uh, it sort of sounds as if they're, they're past the point of no return right now. Like, you know, it's going to have to be a military solution, I guess. And I'm not so sure that anybody's going to be comfortable with that. 
neither side has shown any willingness to sit down and talk. It's been months and months and months since Kiev and Moscow had any kind of face-to-face with their top diplomats. Uh, The West, the United States, and NATO has made it very clear that this war will stop when Russia ultimately leaves Ukrainian territory, that the war is only going to continue if they stay in Ukrainian territory, saying that Russia, the ball is in your court. Russia is hitting back, saying the war started because of the West, ignoring the kind of rhetoric and buildup and ultimate invasion that they took part in. So how this ends, at least according to the West, is is going to sit directly in the hands of, of Vladimir Putin and those around him in the Kremlin. A very pivotal week uh, in, in global politics, and uh, we'll see how Washington responds. Watch for your reporting on Global National. Reggie, as always, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Reggie Chikiti, uh, Global News correspondent in uh, the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.